If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Hey, Darren, have you been watching us on uh, the Electric Now app? I have. I haven't recently because I, I, I watch you pretty much every week when we're doing these things. But Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's, you know what I love about it's, the Electric Now app? It's better it's on so video. It's so easy to use. It's, it's, it's better really on video. Easy. Download the it. app and you watch us. That's all there is to it. It's so and, simple. And a lot of other cool stuff, too. You go to the app store. It says Electric Now. You download it. And then... You press, in the United States, press the button, and there it is. There it is, and you can choose. You can bookmark it. There's plenty of other movies and TV show to enjoy, and episodes of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts. So why wait? Download the Electric Now app and start enjoying us anytime. If you're a fan of Inglorious Trexperts, you're gonna love Trexperts Briefing Room, a Trexperts new series. Briefing Room. What is that? I was about to explain, then you interrupted oh, me. I it sorry. Is, it's curated audio commentaries of classic Star Trek episodes from the original series all the way through Enterprise. You're going to love it as we explore the behind the scenes making of all these wonderful Star Trek episodes with cast and crew that you would never expect to hear doing audio commentaries on Star Trek. Sounds like fun. It will be. And you <laughs> can find it on the Inglorious Trexperts podcast feed and on the new Trexperts briefing podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's go see. What's out there? If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, this is Peter Holmstrom. And this is Lisa Clank. We are back in the host seat for the Inglorious Trexperts podcast, this time joined by a fantastic special guest. He was a series regular for Star Trek Voyager in the role of Tom Paris, Nick Locarno in The Next Generation, the real savior of the universe, as far as I'm concerned, in 1987's Masters of the Universe. And more recently, he's had a prolific second career as a director and executive producer uh, for such TV shows as Chuck, Resident Alien, and the upcoming Disney Plus TV series Turner and Hooch, Mr. Robert Duncan McNeil, welcome to the show. You see, Kevin, opening a dimensional door is relatively easy. But the tones, Kevin, the tones that were stored in this cosmic key were completely erased. Skeletor knew what he was doing. Even if I could fix it, we could search for a thousand years and never find the tones that will take us home. But, but wait a minute. 
The, the tones, you mean the, the melody the key played every time we pressed the red button? Yeah. What is it, Kevin? God, I wish that thing would shut up. Well, thanks. Okay. Wait a minute. I've got it. I've got it. I don't know. I, I just, if I hear a tune a couple of times, I can usually remember it. Besides, it had a good hook. I was going to use it in one of my songs. Songs? Why didn't you tell me you were a song maker? Are you a master? Yes, yes, you are. I, I know that. <laughs> That's why the fates brought us here. The final chord, Kevin. 20 metrons forward. Pull it out of the air for us. Hi. Good to be here. Yes, glad uh, to have you. Yeah, Lisa, my old friend. <laughs> yes, it's been a while, hasn't it? I know. It's been a while since we've been in the same room. I think we were at a fundraiser the last time I saw you live in the flesh. I think uh, so. That was a while back. So. Maybe, was that 2018? Yeah, maybe. I think so. And then since then, you and I have chatted a lot on my podcast, the Delta Flyers podcast, yeah. where you have enlightened everyone with all <laughs> behind the scenes details. It's been awesome. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. Of course, we do have to plug that podcast too. You guys are doing commentaries for every episode of Voyager, right? And so that's, uh, yeah. what, what season are you guys up to now? We're almost, we're about to finish recording season three episodes. We're wow. a couple I think two more left in season three, but we're, we're a bit ahead right now. Uh, we took advantage of my hiatus uh, with production and, and, and trying to get ahead. Cause when I'm, when I'm shooting and, and working, sometimes it's really hard to, to stay up with a, an episode every week, but, sure. but it's been great. You know, it's when COVID started, the, the pandemic started, Garrett, uh, Garrett Wong, uh, called me and he said, hey, I've had this idea that we should do like a recap of the the whole show and this is a perfect time to do it. You're always so busy and I think people would love it. And I was like, ah, nobody's going to care about what we do. <laughs> and it is really taken off, not just with um, the podcast, but the Patreon supporters where we do a lot more interactive stuff and bonus, you know, interviews and uh it's just really created a cool community of, of fans uh, that are interacting and kind of revisiting the show in a whole new way. And, and for me, I've said this on our podcast, but I'll say it again here. Like, I think when Voyager ended, I was so focused on directing and some other things that I kind of left Star Trek behind in many ways and didn't look back. Like um, I just hadn't really thought about it in a long time. So to, be able to go back and reflect after so much time and relive some of those episodes has been just on a personal level, really, really wonderful. You know, remembering some of the things that we did together and the people involved and, and, and remembering episodes that I had completely forgotten about and also seeing what great work 
the actors really did, all of our cast, what, how great the writers, you know, imaginations were, so many wonderful episodes. I, I, I think I'll admit that I maybe underrated what we did in those seven years. <laughs> and it's, it's created a whole new appreciation and, and respect for me. So it's been great. Yeah, I don't know if you've noticed that the, I've noticed there's been a big Voyager resurgence, uh, you know, with the documentary and I've been interviewed for that and for a women in Trek uh, movie and for the history channel is doing a special and it wow. seems to be a real resurgence. Wow. I wonder if that has to do with the 25th anniversary last year, I guess would have been the 25th anniversary, you know, of the premiere. Maybe it has something to do with that of sort of that magic number of, of kind of bringing it back to people's attention. The 25 you know, I think there's a bit of that. I also think it's because there was a generation of people that grew up with Voyager as being one of their, their primary track. And now they are of the age where they are the ones tweeting and getting their kids into it. So there's a whole yeah. new generation that's, and so the numbers have just grown so much. And I think um, even going back to the next generation, it took a little while to take hold because the primary fan base was the original series people. And yeah. so it took a while for like the kids who grew up with it the first time to really become the primary uh, form of people. And so yeah. I think there's a lot of that too. And it, and it shows just because the Voyager documentary is like the number one doc, uh, crowdsourced Kickstarter, docu yeah. Kickstarter yeah, documentary funding uh, of all time, which is, is yeah. incredible. That yeah. is incredible. I, I was so uh, impressed and, and really proud that that happened. That they raised so much money and set that record for uh, for the documentary. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'd actually I'd like to ask a question about yeah. um, your early days in your career. If we could, if we could go back to the very beginning. Um, you started in Hollywood as an actor at a very young age, and and you found some early success with obviously Master of the Universe. But um, what what first drew you into becoming an actor? Like, what, how did that all start for you? Um, for me, I, um, um, I I I grew up. I so I was born in North Carolina, and my father got a job for General Electric Computers, and um, which back then it was called time sharing because companies. You couldn't afford to own a computer as a you know small or medium-sized business. It was just the big IBM or General Electric or you know a handful of companies that owned computer um, farms, I guess data farms or whatever, and knew had the expertise. And so you would you would basically pay GE uh, where my dad worked to do your computer work because no one had the skills back then. This was the late sixties and, uh, and in the seventies. So um, yeah, he, he did a lot of consulting and, and time sharing. It was called where they share the time. They you basically rent time on the GE computers, the big mainframe fast computers to store data or do whatever you needed. Uh, anyway, that's my father's history, not mine. <laughs> uh, he did that. And so, the point is he was, he was transferred a lot, almost like a military kind of situation. Like, you know, we were in North Carolina, then we were in Rockville, Maryland, then we were in Philadelphia, then we were back to the DC area in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and then we were down in Atlanta. And uh, I moved a lot. And so it was in Atlanta around middle school where I had moved again for like the fifth time in six years or whatever it was. And, um, and my little sister, took ballet lessons. Uh, she had just started that. 
uh, around that time. And my mom came home one day and said, hey, at this, this dance school where your sister's going, they've got a little children's theater that's doing the Wizard of Oz and they need munchkins. And I bet they'll have a bunch of kids there that you can meet because we just moved there. And I had never seen a play. I had never thought about performing or acting or any of that. But I, it really started just with like, I didn't have friends. I just moved here. It was a way to meet a bunch of kids. And, and I had done other things like that, like sports and different act, kinds of activities, rec center, rec league stuff. And, uh, but something about going and doing this Wizard of Oz production with a bunch of kids my age and the spirit of um, doing a play and rehearsing and getting to know people it was just very different than the sports teams I'd been on. It was just a different kind of bond that I felt with the kids my age. And so it just immediately, that was the thing that drew me to it. It wasn't that I wanted to perform for people necessarily. I was never, I mean, it, eventually, obviously I became a director and a producer. So being an actor or being famous was never a goal. Um, getting rich and famous was absolutely not a goal for me. It was, always about that initial thing of the bond that's created in that creative process of doing a play or making a TV show or whatever. That was the thing that really drew me to doing this. And it's funny, you said something about, you said, I started very young in Hollywood. I actually didn't start in Hollywood. I was in Atlanta, like I said, and I went to New York city because I had just done theater and, um, and, theater is really what I loved. I didn't imagine somebody like me would ever get on a TV show or a movie like that just seemed crazy, but I had done a bunch of theater at that point. And I was like, maybe I can go do professional theater in New York and be a, you know, a theater actor for a while. I didn't think it would last forever. I didn't, it was just an extension of what I had been doing as a teenager. So went to New York and, um, and I, I did get very, uh, lucky to to get some theater work when I first got there. I did a tour of a play called The Fantastics, a musical that toured the country for, I don't know, six months or so. And um, so I got to, I got to see parts of the country that I'd never seen before. We even went into Ontario and Southern uh, Ontario into Canada. And I got to go to Canada. First time I was ever out of the country, you know, I was like 18 years old or, whatever. So yeah, I started uh, in New York as a theater actor. And uh, eventually I went back to school. I went to Juilliard. I got accepted into Ju Juilliard's theater center and, and went there for about a year and a half. But I left when I got an offer to do a soap opera and did All My Children for three years. And uh, while I was on All My Children's, when I did, I got the movie Masters of the Universe. I was 20. Um, so a lot of things happened those first few years in New York between some theater work and Juilliard and then soap opera and movie. And, and it was, I felt like I was really uh, living a fantasy at that point. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway. So, so that's what, that's what I did. And, and I went back to the theater for years uh, until Voyager, really. I did a lot of plays. I was on Broadway uh, in a play called six degrees of separation. I was in the original cast of that. Um, I uh, did a, a work with Stephen Sondheim a couple of times in the, in, uh, the musical theater world, which was a dream come true and um, did a lot of that. And then, uh, and then Voyager came along when I was about 20, 28, 29, I think. 
I'm leaving on a mission to find a Marquis ship that disappeared in the Badlands a week ago. I wouldn't if I were you. Really? I've never seen a Federation starship that could maneuver through the plasma storms. You've never seen Voyager. We'd like you to come along. You'd like me to lead you to my former colleagues. I was only with the Maquis a few weeks before I was captured, Captain. I don't know where most of their hiding places are. You know the territory better than anyone we've got. What's so important about this particular Maquis ship? My chief of security was on board, undercover. He was supposed to report in twice during the last six days. He didn't. Maybe it's just your chief of security who's disappeared. Maybe. That ship was under the command of another former Starfleet officer, named Chakotay. I understand you knew him. That's right. The two of you didn't get along too well, I'm told. Chakotay will tell you he left Starfleet on principle to defend his home colony from the Cardassians. I, on the other hand, was forced to resign. He considered me a mercenary, willing to fight for anyone who'd pay my bar bills. Trouble is, he was right. I have no problem helping you track down my friends in the Maquis, Captain. All I need to know from you is what's in it for me. You help us find that ship, we help you at your next outmate review. Uh-huh. Officially, you'd be a Starfleet observer during the mission. Observer? Oh, hell, I'm the best pilot you could have. You'll be an observer. When it's over, you're cut loose. Story of my life. You know, it's funny you mention your theater training because many actors through work in Star Trek have talked about how it's it's there's a Shakespearean quality to Star Trek, especially like you do have to um, not only memorize your lines, but you have to like internalize it in a way that it lends itself more to a, th a theater training as opposed to other forms of acting. And, you know, I wonder how, what kind of how did that come into play in terms of your uh, work on Star Trek? Well, I think that um, I feel like Star Trek from the original series has always been these kind of, uh, it's almost an anthology series in a way, because yeah. it's, not, it's not a soap opera. It's not a long serialized story. Although on Voyager, we did have the Let's Get Home story, which carried over seven years. But other than that Let's Get Home story, most of our real tangible stories were one-off stories. They were the, you know, the, the alien lesson of the week, whatever we learn, there's a morality tale sort of quality. There's a mythology sort of yeah. quality, I think, of the stories. And so I think um, theater actors, I, I, I don't know why theater actors are, you know, fit that more than a naturalism or a kind of contemporary. I, I, think, I think that um, the actors on Star Trek, um, and it's a little different now with the modern Star Trek. I, I guess I'll say up through uh, Enterprise, let's say. Um, I think that there was a sort of timelessness that you needed from the actors that was, you know, that you could not identify that that actor or character is from the 20th century with slang and a sort of attitude and an energy that's a bit um, contemporary. I think the show wanted actors who could be sort of timeless and theater actors have a way of that sort of neutral 
quality where they're not they're not um, carrying kind of contemporary um, idiosyncrasies or things like that. I think in the new series in Discovery or some of the new series, I think uh, Picard. I think some of that naturalism has been brought into Trek in a way that it never was before. And yeah. I, I think it's good for the, for the franchise. I, I, I like, sorry, I'm, I'm rambling. I'm jumping all over the place, but I was going <laughs> to say, for the rambling. <laughs> yeah, Garrett and I just recapped an episode called um, season three, late in the season, uh, not distortion. It was, um, Displaced. Let me see the phaser. My hands are completely numb. I would have thought all that hot Klingon blood would have kept you warm. Shows how much you know about Klingons. They have much less tolerance for the cold than humans do. Really? I thought that was Cardassians. Well, they just complain about it more. Displaced. Oh yeah, yeah. I wrote that. You wrote that. Yeah, <laughs> I loved it. I loved the episode. Um, the one criticism I had was for myself that I wish because it was the first time where Tom and Bellana were really confronting their feelings for each other in a relationship in a way that was out on the table. It wasn't because of uh, plan far weirdness. It wasn't because of you know, weird little one-off flirty things. It was really confronting that relationship. And my own criticism for myself would have been, I wish I had brought a little more naturalism to that performance. I felt like I was still kind of playing a bit of that mythology version of it rather than just throwing things away a bit. I think that because we were in that sort of character relationship and human story, that it could have been more effective if it had been if I had brought it down a little bit. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's, I, I think that to get back to theater actors in Star Trek, I think that generally that sort of neutral quality of a theater actor is more effective on the, on the older Star Trek shows than someone who comes in with a, yo, what's up? You know, with all yeah. kinds of like Yeah, that would that, get dated real fast. It gets dated really, really fast. Yeah, so yeah, anyway, that's my long-winded rambling answer about now you mentioned that you weren't really into it to get you know rich and famous, but obviously a lot of fame came along with Star Trek. How how was that to deal with? Um, I think by the time I got on Star Trek, I, I I had a better sense of oh that's part of doing this job is there's press publicity conventions blah yeah. blah blah all that stuff. Um, to take a little step back to answer that question. I was a painfully shy kid, Hmm. painfully shy. And that's one thing that I think theater helped me. I was much more comfortable with a script where someone told me what to say. And especially if that script in a play or something, if my character I was playing was able to articulate really deep feelings or experiences in a way that writers can write words, I didn't have those words as a kid. I was not very... um, comfortable expressing myself. And I was, I was kind of painfully shy, I gotta be honest. So I cover, I, I was much more comfortable playing a character, mm-hmm. uh, you know? And, and I think, 
I experienced a lot of my emotional life through the characters I played. Because in real life, I was much more guarded and less able to express myself. So um, to ask about the fame, I, I think that I was never super comfortable with a lot of attention. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it triggered me in probably childhood ways that just mm. made me feel like, whatever, I don't deserve this. I don't want the attention on me. I, I'm going to say the wrong thing. I don't know. So I, I, um, I don't, I never really liked the idea of being a famous person um, or even recognized, although I'm, I'm much more comfortable now if someone says, hey, I saw this episode of Voyager and you were really good in it. I'm able to, without being neurotic, to say thank you. And I appreciate yeah. it. And I, I can allow for people to enjoy something and, 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 and give me some credit or whatever and, you know, and attention about it. And I don't get it so uncomfortable, but I was not, I was not super comfortable with it back then. Yeah. During, during Voyager even, I was not. So. You know, I wonder if you could talk a bit about the audition process for Voyager, because it's interesting how, you know, TNG was such a, such a big risk for the network. They didn't quite know if Star Trek was going to be a viable franchise outside of the original cast. And then Deep Space Nine comes along and that's a situation where it's like, well, we don't really know if it has legs at this point and if it will exist two shows at the same time with Voyager. It was like, no, we know this is a successful franchise and we have expectations, you know, yeah. uh, from, from the network's perspective anyway. So, uh, but I'm curious if, uh, if you could talk a bit about that audition process, you'd worked in Hollywood now for a bit, you'd had a few starring roles. Um, what was that process like for you? Um, did you even have to audition? I mean, after being in next generation, I did, I did have to audition. Huh. Um, so yeah, because of next gen and the Nick Locarno character, and I, I wasn't aware of all this at the time, but I've learned that, you know, they did talk about Nick Locarno uh, potentially for Deep Space Nine at one point and they decided against it. And then they talked about Nick again for that character for uh, Voyager for a number of reasons, which also included um, Writers Guild <laughs> rules and character creation and who gets yeah. paid. I think there was a, there was some discussion of well maybe it's not Nick but it's somebody very much like him, and I think they really thought that what they saw in the Next Generation that that I did with that character was something that could be very valuable or interesting in this Voyager show. So uh, my audition process when I was uh, to give a little context, the year 1994, the year that we started that show, um, started Voyager, um, was about the worst year of my entire career, financially and work-wise. I, um, I think when I, and, and I mean like the year before, so 93 to 94, that whole time, I was actually talking to a friend of a friend who had a t-shirt comp company. I was gonna go work for this t-shirt company. I. I had gotten married a few years before. Uh, I got married very young and I, we had just had our second child and I was 28 or 29. Um, so I had two kids trying to be an actor and support a family of four. And I had not had a good year, year and a half. Uh, I had worked some with some guest roles, guest star roles. 
I had done some theater work, but didn't make a lot of money. And so that's the context. Okay. So when, when, uh, when Voyager came up uh, to get cast, when they were looking for actors, was in, I think, July of 94. And at that time, I had gone back to New York to do a play at a theater called Second Stage Theater Company, which is a very prestigious off-Broadway um, theater company that sent a lot of things like Dear Evan Hansen to Broadway and all kinds of great shows. But when you do a play at second stage, at that time, I think we made $375 a week. Um, yeah. So I, I was doing a, a play in New York and uh, at a prestigious theater, but I still was not making money. Certainly not enough to support a family of four. And, uh, and uh, so I was, I was a little desperate at the time and I get a call, I'm, I'm doing this play and I get a call um, that this Paramount is interested in, in me for this new series they're doing. And uh, they said this role is very much, you know, modeled after Nick Locarno and what I had done. And basically my agent said, look, this is your job to lose. Like, yeah. you know, you've, they, they have a character that they're even describing as what you did on next gen, but you've got to audition and they want to see you next week. And I'm doing the play and I'm desperate, as I said, and, uh, and I went to the stage manager, the, uh, the uh, you know, to the company that was producing the play. I said, I, I, I really need to go to Los Angeles next week to, for this audition. And they said, well, we don't have understudies at this theater because we're a, um, technically they're a regional theater contract or whatever. They're not required to have understudies. So they said, you know, if you go to, we can't tell you no, but if you go, we're just going to have to cancel those performances uh, because, or we're going to send the stage manager on with a script in his hand, <laughs> play your role because we don't have any understudies. And I really struggled for like 24 yeah. hours. And, and I finally told my agent, I said, I can't come in next week to audition. Um, but if they're willing to wait a couple of weeks, uh, this play is closing in, a, in two, three weeks and I will come out and do whatever they want but I'm doing a play and I can't let the people down that I'm working with. And it was the most painful decision I'd ever made because I thought yeah, they may need to move on. Like, you know, they don't need me to do this show. And I, I really needed that show, but uh, they, they decided not to cast and wait. You know, I'm sure they, I know they auditioned other people because friends of mine auditioned for the role. Um, and the, the morning after we closed the play, I jumped on a plane and uh, went straight into, almost straight in. I got off the plane and I went to, um, oh, what was the old LA department store that's now Bloomingdale's? Um, oh, Lord and Taylor? No, it wasn't Lord and Taylor. Oh, I can't remember. Anyway, I got off the plane and because I'd had a bad year or so, I didn't have a lot of great clothes. And I thought, <laughs> I gotta look good. So I went to this, I went to the mall <laughs> and I bought an outfit that looked more winning and more fresh. And, and I left the tags on, I literally left <laughs> because I thought if I, uh, if I don't get this, I can't afford this. Like I can't buy nice clothes. And so I went to the audition with the tags on the clothes and <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, and the last thing I'll, sorry, I'm telling very long stories today. The last thing I'll say is I, 
I go in and I'd had a beard, a much longer beard than I even have now. Um, anyway, I had a beard in the play. And when I came in and I auditioned, I felt like it went really well. And I, and I went back to wait out in the hall. And then Michael Pillar came out, stepped out of the room. And Michael goes, um, he said, great, so good to see you again. Thanks, um, you know, we're so glad that we waited for you to come back. He said, one thing though, he said, when you were on Next Generation, you didn't have a beard. And um, the, the studio and network inside who were there for this audition, he said, uh, they're just having trouble kind of seeing you without a beard. Are you willing to shave the beard? And I said, sure, yeah, if, if I get the part, I'd, absolutely, I would shave the yeah. beard. He goes, no, I don't mean then, I mean right now. Would you shave <laughs> and come back in the room? <laughs> I said, sure, but I don't have a razor. And he said, come with me. And he took me to his office and he had a bathroom <laughs> and he had a razor in his bathroom. And he said, use my razor, shave off the beard, take your time when you're ready, come back over and we'll, we'll do it again. And so I don't know if you've ever shaved, well, Lisa, you've never shaved a beard at all, but to shave a beard without trimming it down is painful. Mm. Like, you know, if you, if you have a full beard and you want to shave it, you should really take trimmers, get it down yep. low and then shave the beard. But I didn't have that. I just had a razor and a full beard. Awesome. So I shaved my beard. I, I, I nicked myself all up. It was painful and uh, not, not comfortable at all, but I shaved the beard, went back in. And uh, it went great. And then I think that night I got the call that they, yeah, they, uh, I, I feel like it was that night or maybe the next morning, but it was, it was very quickly. Wow. So that's you my, for this role. That's, that's the, <laughs> I literally bled for the role. Literally. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. So I guess uh, my next question is, uh, what you what led you to direct? What led me to direct? Um, so uh, again, you prompt a very long <laughs> story of my life, but I'm gonna I'm gonna tell I'm gonna answer the question that way because it's the only way I know how. So what led me to direct? I uh, when I was back in Atlanta doing community theater at the little dance studio and some other theater around town. Um, I was always very sort of entrepreneurial, I guess is the word I would use. Um, the little, after a few years of doing this little theater in Atlanta, the owner of the studio said, hey, we've got some little kids that wanna take acting class and we don't have a teacher. Would you wanna teach acting to little kids? Well, I was only at this point, maybe 15, 16 years old, something yeah. like that. Um, but I was like, great, you'll pay me to go <laughs> do something that, you know, so I started teaching acting to, to kids um, at this little dance studio. And then that led me to, well, hey, maybe I can start a theater company and we can, you know, I can do kind of what we do in the acting classes with my, my peers, my friends, and we'll we'll get together like a class, but it'll be rehearsing a play and we'll do it and we'll perform it. And we ended up doing that. We ended up perform. We ended up writing uh, uh, a show at one point and uh, performing it. We got a local professional theater to give us their Monday nights when they were dark. We were able mm -hmm. to perform at that theater. Um, 
So we actually made money and got paid to perform. Wow. Right? So even at like 16, 17, those last couple of years in Atlanta, I was already sort of directing, I was teaching kids. I was, I was, I created a theater company that we produced a, a couple of plays and uh, musicals. And um, so, so that was kind of, I was doing all that back then, not just acting, not just performing. And then uh, again, when I, when I was uh, on the soap opera in New York in the eighties, um, I wanted to do a play. And so I produced a play and I, one of my teachers at Juilliard, I called him and, and reached out and got him to direct us. And we did a Sam Shepard one act that had never been uh, professionally performed in New York. So it was a New York premiere of a Sam Shepard one act play that we produced oh. down in a row. And um, so all of those things sort of led me to, I was always, even if I was on a TV show, I was always interested in the other things happening, not just mm -hmm. showing up to do it. So I would, I would watch, the producers, you know, I made good friends with our, our line producers and, you know, how do they do what they do? And there was a producer named Greg Prange who was on a TV show I did called Going to Extremes. Mm -hmm. And um, he was a big mentor of mine and was always um, great at sharing how he produced and what his thinking was and, and uh, let me come on scouts and go to meetings and things. And, uh, and I, always talk to the directors about what they were doing. I always talk to the cameramen, like, why are you, you know, um, doing it this way? What is the shot? How, would, how do you make that shot? How do you, yeah. you, know, you know, what do you need to, uh, I was always asking questions. And so anyway, all of that context is about like, by the time I came on Voyager, I had shadowed some directors. I had already brought up um, a few years earlier on a couple of shows I did. Um, I brought up the idea of directing and, and uh, one of the shows going to extremes, um, they were open to it and, and allowed me to shadow a lot, but we got canceled after a year or so. I never had the chance. Yeah. So yeah, coming on to Voyager, literally day one of filming the pilot, uh, as we, I walked away from the stage with Rick Berman and I don't know who else was, it was a few of us walking away. And I said to Rick, I said, oh, and by the way, Happy to be here, day one of the pilot. Hopefully we'll run a long time. But I want you to know, I, I, I'm also interested in directing and I know you guys have done that. Other, you know, uh, next gen actors have done that. And he laughed, he thought I was this. <laughs> and he said, well, we'll see, you know, maybe season four or five, you know, down the road, we'll see. And I said, no, Rick, I mean, I wanna direct like this first season because I've been on shows that got canceled and and it never happens. So you tell me whatever I need to do. I want to direct, you know, sooner than later. And I, and I'll, you know, do whatever you say. And he, he laughed and, but I stayed in touch with him about that. And during that first season, I shadowed a lot and observed mm -hmm. a lot. Um, between season one and two, I took some classes and uh, <clears throat> I shot a short film that was horrible that I, I never even, put out there it was so bad but it was uh, it was a great experience and then uh season two we had jonathan frakes fall out as a late late in season two i think and uh and uh i had been shadowing and rick called me at home on a saturday and said you ready to direct and i was like yep and he said well you yeah. start monday. you know frakes is out he can't do the episode you start on monday so <laughs> yeah that's how that happened
That's awesome. Yeah. That's so interesting too, because that was, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say that episode, Sacred Ground, I realized in, in my podcast on the Delta Flyers that we actually shot that in season two, but it didn't air until early season three that they held that episode really? and a couple uh-huh. other episodes. So, because uh, I've always said I directed in season two when people ask me, but when I look at the air dates, yeah. my episode didn't air until early, like a few episodes into season three. So that confused me. But when I went back and looked at it, I realized they shuffled a few episodes around. So, yeah, I was going to say, I remember directing sacred ground in season two and it went great. Mm-hmm. Then I directed my next episode was unity, which is also season three or is it airs in season three. And I'm like, I know I didn't direct twice in season three. Yeah. I only directed once in season two, once in season three. And then is. I think more actors and people wanted to direct sort of some floodgates opened up in that season two when yeah. a lot of people expressed an interest. I think that's when Rick and everybody said, okay, one at a time, like let's calm down. Yeah. <laughs> I directed season two, three, and then I didn't direct again until season five. Yeah. And then I think I directed again in season seven. It was like every other year after that first couple. Um, well, Lisa, I was clearly curious too because uh, Sacred Ground was your episode that you mm-hmm. you had written, and were you aware that? Uh, I guess you wouldn't have been because, but I guess when you were writing it, were you aware that Jonathan Franks was first going to direct it, and then later it became uh, Robert's first uh, step? I don't think I ever heard about Franks doing it. Um, I mean, uh, we didn't really get in hear much about the production until the first production meeting, which was usually you know just a week or so before the episode would shoot. Um, so no, I, I think the first I ever heard of it was uh, Robbie actually came to my office and said, I'm directing your episode. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, okay. Breaks was in that slot and then he had just gotten approval to direct First Contact. His oh, movie. wow. Yeah. So that's why he, he stepped away from our episode. Mm-hmm. He immediately went into, uh, you know, full, full court press on, uh, on, on First Contact film. So right. that happened very quickly, and uh, and that's why I got that opportunity because he he fell out, you know, last yeah. night. Yeah, that's fun. Sorry, it's so you interesting know, I, I too. I thought that episode went up great. Yeah, I did too. It's a uh, it's so interesting too that um, you know, you as Tom Paris, and then also uh, Roxanne Dawson as as Buona Torres. You're a couple in the show, but then also both of you have been just had such successful directing careers was was that something that you both were like trading notes on on set like mm-hmm. uh passionate about directing and things like that I, you know it's funny with roxanne just as a human being she's uh she keeps things closer to her vest mm-hmm. i don't think roxanne she didn't make a big splash about you know i probably was a little more chatty about it because <laughs> i had i had started shadowing before star trek um I knew that Roxanne was interested, but we didn't really like trade notes or anything. And, and I just think, you know, Roxanne took a much quieter path towards directing on that show. Um, obviously she is very serious about it and she's a wonderful director. She's turned into a, a very successful, very talented director. But um, I even did a, I, Roxanne and I both directed this series uh, called Smash the first season um, 
which was really funny. It's the only time that our paths have sort of reconnected. I directed an episode right after her. So it, on that first season, she directed, I think, episode 10 and I did 11. Um, so she was shooting when I was prepping mm. on that show, which was really fun to, to be back there. But, um, and we definitely traded notes on Smash because that first season, was a, there was a lot of moving parts in that show. <laughs> and she was ahead of me, so I got the benefit of, of hearing her thoughts and her advice uh, on, on how to navigate all that. But, uh, but on Star Trek, no, we didn't, we didn't really, uh, I mean, we talk about it, but it, it wasn't like, even when Bob Picardo directed or everyone was very supportive, but it wasn't like, it wasn't a team effort. Like Roxanne did her directing. That was her vision of how to direct that show. You know, there was not a lot of like chatting about how she should do things or how I should do. People left me alone to, in most ways to, to really direct um, sacred ground or whatever I directed um, you know, to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm curious too, because I think Lisa and I have talked about this in the past, how uh, transitioning from Star Trek into other uh, shows and other genres was sometimes a bit, a bit difficult because people kind of pigeonholed you in Star Trek, right? And I'm curious as, as you as a director, did you encounter a similar thing or, or was it more like you've directed TV? Awesome. Let's hire you for something else. Um, I think so after... Uh, so during Star Trek, I directed, I think, four episodes of Voyager, and I made a couple of short films that I actually did put out there at film festivals and things. Uh, the first short film I made was very much a coming-of-age story about these two young brothers. One of the uh, stars of my short film was Joshua Jackson, who went on to mm. Doctor Street and many other things. Um, and then my next short film was sort of a contemporary kind of gritty action comedy about Cupid as a hitman um, <laughs> that, that I wrote and, and, and got Paramount to give me the New York street backlot for a weekend. So I shot two days on the backlot. So I'd made two short films that were not science fiction at all. One was a gritty sort of coming of age drama. One was a contemporary comedy um, action comedy. Um, as soon as I got off of uh, Voyager, my mentor, the guy I mentioned before, Greg Prange, he had seen my first film that Joshua Jackson had been in um, because he was producing Dawson's Creek now. Greg was mm -hmm. producing Dawson's Creek and Josh was on Dawson's Creek. So right after I got off Voyager, Greg offered me an episode of Dawson's Creek to direct. Mm -hmm. And I would say that if anything, I got pigeonholed in that sort of WB, CW, teen, soapy. Uh, I did a lot of that stuff for the first initially. Um, I did this show Everwood at the WB. I did uh, Dawson's Creek a lot for a couple of years. I ended up doing, I don't know, seven, eight, ten episodes. I don't remember in a couple of years, the last two seasons. And uh, um, I did a show called Summerland. I directed a lot on that show. It was a spelling teen drama. So I sort of got more pigeonholed in that for a few years uh, mm -hmm. than, than the Star Trek thing. Um, 
Yeah, I didn't, I didn't try and kind of find parallel shows like other sci-fi shows. Um, I just somehow fell into these teen dramas and that sort of dictated my path for a long time. Um, I definitely think that people can get pigeonholed that way. Um, when I, a few years later, I was producing a show called Chuck for NBC. And um, that first season we had a director fall out, kind of like Jonathan fell out and, and, um, and gave me a shot. We had a director fall out and I couldn't direct the episode of Chuck. And so we were looking for a, a director and I su suggested, we were looking at who was available and I told Warner Brothers that was producing Chuck, I said, hey, there's this director I know named Alan Craker. He yeah. had directed uh, a lot of Voyager episodes. Mm -hmm. And they were like, Warner, Warner Brothers was like, we, we don't know Alan Craker. We've never worked with Alan Craker. And what's his resume? And they saw all this Star Trek and sci-fi kind of stuff. And Warner Brothers was like, well, we don't know if Alan Craker's you know, the right director, because Chuck mm. is this contemporary comedy and, um, you know, it's got action and comedy and character work. And, and I really had to push for Alan. I was like, no, I, I really think Alan is going to be a good director for our show, even though he's got a lot of science fiction, um, you know, Star Trek and sci-fi. So I have seen that sort of prejudice before with other people. I didn't feel like if, if, if it happened to me, maybe I, I'm not aware of it, but, but I saw it with Alan and to finish that story, Alan came on directed, I think episode 11 of Chuck that year for season. And he became one of our regular directors. Like, you know, our yeah. star Zach loved him and the studio loved his episodes. And um, Alan went on. I think that Chuck opened up some new doors for Alan in a way that he could get out of the science fiction world a little bit and try other things so yeah it can it can it can definitely um stigmatize you a bit sorry i'm gonna even ramble more i'm totally dominating this whole podcast um in terms of the stigmas i think that the people that suffered the worst were some of our crew members and I don't know, lisa if you saw it with writers but the crew a lot of our crew had worked on Next Generation for seven years and DS9 and Voyager for seven years and Enterprise for four years. And all of a sudden, after 18 years or whatever the math is on that, um, people like Marvin Rush, our DP, was coming out into the market and all he had done is Star Trek for 18 years or, you know, uh, gaffer or grip or you name it props guys go down the list everybody on that crew had really made most of their career in the star trek world and i saw a lot of people on our crew struggle to yeah. get work for a while marvin eventually um after after some struggling he eventually started to get traction in new things and and became a, a dp on a lot of great shows helen wheels notably but many others um but some of the crew really struggled and a few of them I know kind of backed away and and ended up sort of semi-retiring or retiring not long after mm. if they were later in their careers because they just couldn't start over trying yeah. to build a network of you know contacts and 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 a resume that was more up to date <laughs> yeah you know so there's definitely can be a stigma um 
not just of Star Trek, I guess, of any kind of long run where you, you kind of, you lose that, that sense of like being relevant, <laughs> you know. And I think well, even a little bit more with Star Trek, um, I mean, I've noticed as, as a writer that Trek is its own language in a way. And I think that, and maybe this is true for, for set designers and prop guys and all that as well, that they kind of figure that if you can do that one really specialized thing, it doesn't necessarily generalize. Um, you know, that if you can do Star Trek, that means that you can do that one thing. And, you know, so I had to generate like new spec scripts and, you know, to show people that I could do other things. Uh, so I, I think that that is a particular thing to, to track. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and it's so interesting too how Star Trek has outlived uh, and is more popular than ever than I think a lot of the prestige shows from from that same time period, you know. And it's, uh, but we forget looking back, it's like, yes, yeah, Star Trek The Next Generation was on first run syndication. So it wasn't even mm -hmm. on a network, so to speak. It was sold to these independent stations that uh, maybe you had, maybe you didn't have on your TV, you know. And, and then UPN for Voyager was a new network. It was yeah. untested. This was the flagship show in a world where NBC, CBS, ABC were, were considered the dominant stations. So it was, it was kind of a, a odd place for the show to be in. Yeah. But. So then you got into producing. What's that? So then you got into producing. Wanted more control? I did. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't have enough of this a director. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I sort of stumbled into producing. I mean, I, I always, like I said, I've been sort of entrepreneurial, but I directed an episode of this. I, well, so I left Star Trek in 2001 started directing Dawson's Creek. And then I, I very quickly uh, became, my schedule became very full of episodes as a director. I was, I was doing, you know, maybe that first year I did two, two or three episodes um, that year. And then the next year, maybe five or six. And, and a few years later, I was, I was doing eight or 10 episodes a season as a director, yeah. which is a very busy schedule. And I was, I was, bouncing from this show to that show and I was luckily invited back to every show that I did I think I got an invitation to come back but I came into this one show called What About Brian it was on ABC uh, it was the second season of that show and uh, it was it, they had created it they wanted it to be at the time kind of a, a, a modern version of like 30 something where you have a group of friends and um, the premise was Brian was the, the, the mutual friend of this whole group of friends, but he was the only single one. Everybody else had relationships or, you know, but what about Brian? What are we gonna do with him? Because he's the, he's the lone single guy that can't commit to a relationship. Um, it was a really sweet show and had some comedy in it, which I've been doing a little comedy at that point. And, um, and I directed an episode and as soon as the studio a network, I guess, had seen my episode, I got a call and they said, hey, we're, uh, our last producing director has left the show and we wanted to know if you wanted to take that job over hmm. uh, this season, like now, like yeah. jump right in. And I was like, oh, wow. And I, I literally did not know what to do in that role. I didn't, there's no training program there was nothing like that at the DGA. There was, 
you know, I I felt like I knew a lot about how shows were made, but I didn't know what that job did specifically. So, yeah. but I said, sure, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take the job. They were halfway through their second season. So I came in for the last nine episodes. I remember calling some friends of mine, you know, who were produ line producers and producing directors and saying, what do I do? Like, <laughs> I don't know what to do. You know, what is the, what is the responsibility of a producing director? Um, so I got some good advice from people and just came in and yeah, I produced uh, what about Brian for the, the last half, second half of season two. And, um, and it, and it went well, I learned a lot, um, you know, made some mistakes, learned a lot. And as that show was winding down, um, I, I directed a pilot. I had gotten a pilot for ABC called Samantha who It was a half hour mm -hmm. single camp comedy. And so I finished up producing my first producing job on what about Brian? And I went right into the pilot of Samantha who, and we cast Christina Applegate signed on and then Gene smart. And, and we couldn't find a love interest for Christina. And um, I said, Hey, I just did this show. What about Brian with Barry Watson? And he's not a comedy, like you don't know him as a comedy guy, but I'm telling you, he's funny. And yeah. I think he'd be a great love interest, the straight man kind of for Christina Applegate in this show. I think they would have good chemistry because we could not find a comic actor who matched up with Christina. We had, we had chemistry tested and screen tested a bunch. Mm. So uh, uh, we brought Barry in and he got Samantha who, and the pilot went to series and, and Barry did his first comedy with the, with, with me and, and Don Todd, the writer. And um, yeah, so my first producing led to that pilot, which I also was a producer on the pilot. And then Chuck came up right when that pilot got picked up. Um, I had, I was in a great position of having a pilot going to series. I could have stayed on with Samantha who, but when I saw the Chuck pilot, I'm just like, that's the show. That's, that's, that's yeah. my kind of show. Like it's got comedy, it's got action, it's got heart. Um, Mick G had directed the pilot, which I looked at and I was like, that's what I got. That's my dream job. It really yeah. was my dream job. So um, yeah, that led to five years of producing that show. And I learned a lot more about producing on, on my second, you know, producing job. Mm-hmm. I do have to. I do have to ask the question that you yourself asked. What does a producing director on TV <laughs> do? <laughs> well, I think I've learned that where it starts from is to be in partnership with the showrunner, the creator of the show. So on, and I didn't know that. <laughs> it seemed <laughs> obvious, but I did not know that when I started the job. I thought that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I didn't realize how important that was. So what the producing director does is, um, first of all, you've got to be in partnership in the tightest relationship of all with the showrunner. You've got to be the person that knows what that showrunner wants, what their vision is of the show, what the tone is they're looking for, what they like and don't like. Um, you've got to know those things because you're the representative of the, the showrunner to the, to the, the actual execution of the show. The other thing the producing director does is direct some episodes, usually sets kind of a standard of this is what 
we want the show to generally look like and how we want to make the show. Uh, uh, usually between the pilot and the producing director's sort of um, vision for the show, between the, those two people, the pilot director and, the and me, we'll sort of come up with our, our playbook of how we make the show. Um, and then I hire the directors. I, I kind of lead the, the, the team in picking which directors are best for our show. I interact with all the departments um, as a producing director, uh, locations and set design. And the focus is much more on creative interpretation rather than finances. Although a lot of times my job as a producing director will have to be to figure out a way to creatively make the show so that we stay on budget and knowing yeah. how to use budgets and, and, and understand budgets and play with budgets in a way that, you know, okay, here's our pattern budget. Let's, instead of we don't need that much money for special equipment, we'll move it over here for locations so we get that really great location or, or you know, let's build that thing instead of going off, you know, it's cheaper to build it and just knowing all the, all the costs of things. And, and again, stemming from what is the showrunner's vision? Because mm -hmm. if I know, oh, going to the river and seeing a river in this scene is more important than that stupid conversation while they're driving, let's move the scene from driving and stick them in a, you know, a set we own and save that money for the river that we want to go play on or, you know, mm -hmm. knowing what the priorities are and things like that. So. That's awesome. Great. Yeah. I'm curious if you could, um, because let's transition to talking about your new show, Turner and Hooch, which is coming out this July on Disney Plus. And that's a situation where I imagine it's a bit different for you as a director and as a producer, because not only is it a show that you want to make your own and have it be your own specific visual style, but it's also a, an adaptation, a reimagining of a, of a previous film. And, you know, famously, like they just released a poster for the, the show, which is like a pose exact to the poster with Tom Hanks from 1987. Yeah. So clearly they're trying to hit the nostalgia here, <laughs> but um, talk to us about that. Yeah. I mean, the thing about Turner and Hooch, it's a wonderful show. Actually. I had, I had seen the movie back in 89 or when, when it came out, I remember liking it, loving Tom Hanks and liking the movie, but I couldn't remember anything about it, to be honest, when they called me and I went back and watched the movie and was shocked to remember or to see again that the dog dies in the movie. <laughs> the dog dies. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> the dog, I couldn't believe it. Anyway, um, no dogs were harmed in our series. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, the things that, that impact uh, how, as a producing director, how we make this show one is the nostalgia factor of, yeah, what is, what is the source material and what, is, what do we want to, what elements of that do we want to bring in? Whether it's, um, like we brought in Reginald Val Johnson who, who played Tom Hanks' partner on the in the movie. We yeah. brought him in, the writers brought him in, I didn't bring him in. Mm -hmm. The writers created a character, brought that character back as now the mayor of the small mm -hmm. town, Cypress Beach, where Tom Hanks lived in the movie. So there is some bringing that franchise forward with Reginald Vell Johnson um, playing this role. But the way that I, as a producing director, can help to 
amplify that those ideas is like for example in in the finale um there's a moment where reginald vel johnson shows up at the oh, i don't want to give away plot <laughs> There's there's a moment where Reginald Val Johnson feels uh, some victory in in solving a big problem that's been puzzling the series and, and his character. And he and I said, what if you take a moment there, Reginald, and you stop and you look up to the sky and you say, we did it, Scott. Like it was not scripted, but it's a way that the original source material and this character and Tom Hanks and all of that can get sort of brought in. And so we, we, we played that moment where he got out and he took a moment, not scripted, and he said, we did it, Scott. And then, and then he moved on. So we look for those opportunities to, you know, take the script that's written and all the, all the work other people have done. And when we're actually filming, make sure that we keep all those, those ideas in mind and, and grab, you know, milk it for all we can. The other thing in, in, in the Turn Hooch series is uh, Mick G directed the pilot and Mick G also directed the Chuck pilot. So I've worked mm -hmm. with Mick G a few times. Um, uh, Mick G brought his own flair and his own sense of style to the pilot of our show. So looking at what Mick G did and knowing Mick G's tastes um, as a producing director, I keep that in mind all the time. You know, how can we make sure that we're not only bringing the original series or the original movie um, qualities of that original movie, but we're bringing in the qualities that make G brought to, to our little cocktail. Mm -hmm. So we're always, you know, hitting, hitting all those bases. And, um, and so there's a lot of things to think about. And then, and then for me, like, what do I want to add to it? Like, what is my point of view about it too sometimes? Yeah. So, you know, uh, yeah, I think, I think I was very, I directed the second episode after Mick G did the pilot. I did the next one. And I feel like it's a great one, two punch of Turner and Hooch. I feel like those first couple episodes are, uh, all those things I was describing happen. We bring in, you know, the original movie shows up in its own ways and in, in, in the first couple episodes and my point of view I was able to bring to that second episode. And so uh, they're all great episodes, but just out of the gate, those first couple really have to have to um, capture all those things we're talking about. So you, you create a, um, a template for every, all the other directors and all the other episodes coming after. Yeah. Well, and also forgive me if I'm wrong here, but this is your first um, in, in like a streaming program specifically, right. As opposed to like, oh, a yeah. 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 I have been tr banging on that door for these, you know, streaming platforms and trying to get into, you know, Netflix and Amazon and Apple TV. And yeah, I was, they actually asked me to do a, an amazing stories episode about two mm -hmm. years ago and for schedule reasons, I couldn't work it out. So it broke my heart because I've been trying to get into the, the streaming world for a while. And, um, how has that kind of realigned your, your perspective on directing or has it like, is the approach a bit more traditional with Turner and Hooch? Or? I think Turner and Hooch is probably a little more traditional than some of the, you know, the artsy fartsy streaming. <laughs> I would love to be working on. Don't get me wrong. I was <laughs> on those shows, but, but I, I, I um, luckily knock on wood, 
um, I'm, I'm usually pretty busy. Um, so if, if those rare opportunities for streaming did come along, like amazing stories or whatever comes along, sometimes I can't take them, you know, when the, the door opens cause I'm, I'm, I'm busy on another show, but, but I, I love like what we're doing on resident alien, even though it's on sci-fi channel, it's a, it's a more traditional cable network. It feels like a streaming show to me, like sure. cre- creatively the way that Chris Sheridan, a creator is telling the stories he's telling. They feel very contemporary and relevant and uh, making the social commentary that he wants to make. And the, um, it, it's a very smart show for a, for a traditional, you know, cable network. Uh, I, I feel like I'm making a, you know, one of those streaming shows with resident alien and Turner and Hooch. Yeah. Nothing changes in terms of how we make a show. It's, it's, it's all the same steps. Um, and how is it working with dogs? <laughs> I, I love our dogs, you know, the breed and Turner and Hooch, the breed is a dog de Bordeaux. So it's a mm-hmm. French, French Mastiff is the dog. They're typically kind of lazy dogs. They get very tired. Um, they can be very stubborn. They're just not easily trained. So mm-hmm. we, had, we had four dogs that we worked with. We also had um, a puppet, an animatronic sort of puppet from the kind of the, the lower like chest up. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't film, you couldn't put the puppet facing the lens and, and use the puppet as the dog, but you could shoot over the head of the puppet if you needed the puppet to grab a person's arm or, you know, we could do things with the, the puppet to bridge the gaps with the dog, the dog skills. And, and uh, only once in the whole series, I think, did we ever have to resort to a full CG dog, but it was because the situation was dangerous. There was fire and glass and things involved that we would never want to put a dog in jeopardy that way. Mm -hmm. So, but otherwise it, it was the dogs or the puppets, you know, sometimes that we would, we would use just for detailed, stuff mm-hmm. yeah the dogs are great the dogs are i mean they drive you nuts sometimes because <laughs> they don't know that the clock's ticking and you're running out of time and you know they don't know yeah. union rules and things like that yeah they don't know <laughs> that. the dogs are great our training team was super they work so hard and uh and uh you know took a, a full squad to wrangle the four dogs to play one role yeah and now Resident Alien is coming back, right? Yeah, we go. I go back in ten days up to Canada, and we start wow, shooting. Awesome. Yeah, we start shooting like six weeks, so we we'll start on the first two episodes. We do two episodes at a time, sort of cross board, and so um, I'll do the I'll direct the first two, and um, yeah, we're doing sixteen episodes this year, and yeah, wow. yeah. yeah, it's gonna be great. That was kind of a, a nice surprise hit for uh, COVID, I think. Like, are you afforded a, a bigger budget this year or a little bit more freedom? In t- no, of course not. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy talk. Sorry. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, there is, I mean, I will say there's a, there's a, you know, a secret sauce that I've used this year during COVID on producing the shows because um, these big multinational corporations like all businesses have um, 
insurance and they have insurance and money for things like unexpected pandemics. So there's, we, we have a, our budget for our show. And then over here, they have this thing called insurance or COVID budget. And so the more I can steal from the COVID budget, <laughs> blame everything on COVID, you know, so that's the game that I play is like, how much can I, how can I create a story that this, is more expensive because of COVID, <laughs> that COVID money, give me your COVID money. So yeah, we've been, uh, we don't have any more money for budgets, um, but there is this extra money that has been around since this pandemic, since we came back to work during the pandemic, there's some extra money for um, the COVID costs of things and the pandemic costs that I've, I've tried to maximize. I will, be honest i mm -hmm. no reason not to it's, it's there so absolutely well we've we've kept you here for a while now so i think we'll start wrapping <laughs> up um lisa do you have a final question for um where do we find you on social media was that too absolutely <laughs> I'm, i i i uh where do you find me i think i'm on instagram i'm mcneil.robbie and on twitter I don't know what I am. I think I'm Robert D. McNeil. I don't know. I'll have to look at it. If you give me a second, I'll tell you. <laughs> sure. I don't, I don't, I didn't do a lot of social media for a long time. I just didn't think I was very good at it. I'm not super clever with the hashtags and, but. Um, yeah, I haven't mastered hashtags either. Yeah. Um, my Twitter is at Robert D. McNeil with two L's at Robert D. McNeil on my Twitter and, uh, and my Instagram is confirming McNeil Robbie. Awesome. Fantastic. Uh, and of course the Delta Flyers podcast too, it's fantastic. So everyone should go check that out too. Yeah. Um, I, I do have a final question actually, and I, I have to give a shout out here to uh, my good friend, Robert Bozich, who I play Star Trek cards with, uh, played the <laughs> customizable card game, which is amazing. And he is absolutely obsessed with uh, Tom Paris and has in his own headcanon has made it to where Nick Locarno is actually Tom Paris. And they're just <laughs> the same character as why wouldn't you say that? Um, uh, my question is though, is like, he is one of many people who adore Tom Paris as a character who there that's the number one favorite Star Trek character. And I'm curious, looking back, do you, do you, why do you think that is? Why do you think the character resonates as much as it has and has transcended uh, two series now? Warning, oxygen level at 104 millibars. Tom. Open your eyes. Warning. Oxygen level at 87 millibars. I was having a dream. There's something I have to say. Me too. I'm glad the last thing I'll see is you. I've been a coward about everything. Everything that really matters. No, you're being a little hard on yourself. No. I'm gonna die without a shred of honor. And for the first time in my life, that really bothers me. So I have to tell you something. 
Warning. I... Oxygen level at 71 millibars. I have to tell you the truth. The truth about what? Yeah, I think um, I think the the podcast, the Delta Flies podcast, has definitely helped me to um, clarify for myself <laughs> why people like him. And I th- I think what I've what I would say is that um, he's a character that uh, clearly has flaws and comes in with a lot with a lot of flaws that everybody can see and then is able to change and evolve and really fundamentally change like in big ways and, um, and redeem himself and recreate himself, you know, I think in a, in a lot of ways. And I think everybody can relate to that story. I think all of us, whether we talk about it or keep it secret, we are aware of our imperfections, our own limitations and, flaws and wounding or mistakes we've made. And, uh, and so seeing a character who can really recreate himself into someone brand new and someone that he's very proud to be um, is, is a good model for people. And so I think that's, that's a reason. I think um, this is a big generalization. I'm sure a lot of people will be very angry that I say this, but a lot of times Star Trek characters don't get a chance to evolve. That's very true. I, I, I think that a lot, of, yeah, a lot of times because of the way Star Trek historically has told stories, you need your characters to continue to be, to fill the role that they were created to fill. So they kind of don't change very much, very small ways, and then it's forgotten in the next episode. Yeah. I think Tom and Bolana both were very lucky characters and we were lucky actors to get to play those roles because we got to do something a lot of the actors didn't get to do. And that's to really do a 180 in these, with both those characters uh, from where they started in the pilot. So um, yeah, I think that's one reason a lot of people are drawn to them is they can, they can see that in their own lives that that's something they might want to do. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's, also, that's great... he was funny too. So <laughs> <laughs> he was into cars and, and cartoons. We could relate to that very easily. It's <laughs> great. That's great. Uh, well, awesome. I think we'll wrap up right there. Uh, Robert Duncan McNeil, thank you so much for being here. Um, uh, Turner and Hooch premieres July on Disney Plus. July, I forget the date. Is it July nineteenth? I think twenty first. No. Okay, yeah, July twenty first. Awesome. July 21st on Disney Plus. It's a weekly show, so you can check out uh, his episode the week after that, so the 28th, and then on from there. Uh, Lisa, thanks for being here. This is so much fun. This is awesome. It is. Um, and we definitely want to thank also our sound engineer at Electric Surge, uh, Bill Ritter, and producer Natalie Mascali, as well as everyone else there at the company, and our executive producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. 
And thank you also, most of all, to you, the listeners out there. You can check us out on uh, Inglorious Trek on Twitter and Glorious Trek Spirits on Instagram and Facebook. So for myself and Lisa Klink, we will say thank you very much for being here and keep on trekking and gloriously, of course. <laughs> This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.